Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly data centres and telecoms news roundup brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me today we have our Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporters Abigail Apia and Natalie Bannerman. This week, we are also joined by a special guest. It's Interactions VP of Enterprise, Bill Fennec, um, and Bill will be speaking to Abigail about data center strategies for smart cities later in this episode. Um, but first, in the news this week, we have new market intelligence from Nokia Deepfield and Google. Um, President-elect Joe Biden has appointed Minion Kleiberg to the telecoms transition team. Equinix has revealed its plans for a $200 million investment to expand its DC data centers, and Vodafone published its latest financial results in the UK um, and the country also has a new centre of excellence but first this week we are going to look at network traffic. Um, now Natalie you covered this story and it's based on some new intelligence that's been published by Nokia Deepfield. Um, bring us the headlines. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, uh, Nokia uh, Deepfield, which is the um, kind of analytics and, and data um, arm of, of Nokia, uh, released a 50 page report um, entitled Network Intelligence Reports um, Networks in 2020, which is basically an overview of the kind of biggest trends in the space um, over this very kind of tumultuous year. And of course, talking about the effect of COVID-19. Uh, the report specifically targeted um, network service providers across Europe and North America. So it's important to remember this, of course, doesn't include the doesn't include the rest of the world uh, between uh, February and September of this year. Now, um, according to the findings, um, many networks experienced a year's worth of traffic uh, growth, which is between 30 and 50 percent in just a few weeks after the COVID lockdown measures came into effect. However, by September, this had evened out to about 20 to 30 percent above pre-pandemic levels, um, with, of course, you know, further further season, seasonal growth to come um, because everybody's at home during the kind of festive period. Now, from February to September, there was also a 30% increase in video subscribers, a 23% increase in VPN endpoints in the US, and a 40 to 50% increase in DDoS attacks. And peering traffic also saw a 100% plus increase um, as on-net caches reached their capacity. So overall, um, you know, I suppose rather unsurprisingly, we can kind of see that the networks have been under uh, a lot of strain this year, but really holding up really well. Now, there were kind of key um, takeaways um, that the report pointed out um, for service providers and really to kind of future-proof networks for kind of any future growth. Um, so, you know, the first thing that they said was that the networks really are kind of made for this, meaning that, you know, while the networks held up during this time, you know, for data, um, you know, traffic levels remained high, you know, even as lockdowns eased, meaning that service providers really need to continue to kind of engineer what they say, what they call headroom into networks for future requirements. So really that comes down to um, many of the things that we're talking about, you know, increasing capacity, getting as much um, kind of um, um, bandwidth as we possibly can um, down a single um, wavelength and as, as much investment as we can in that area. Uh, content delivery chains are also evolving um, because as we saw um, demand for streaming video, you know, low latency cloud gaming and um, video conferencing, um, as well as, you know, quick access to cloud applications and services all placed, you know, a lot of pressure on the um, internet service delivery chain. Um, the third thing was residential broadband networks have 
now been seen as a piece of critical infrastructure. Again, hardly surprising given the fact that everybody's at home, um, but it also means the rollout of new technologies such as 5G and next generation fibre to the home will go a long way uh, towards improving access and connectivity uh, in rural and remote and underserved areas. Um, again, in line with many of the things that we're talking about. Now, fourth, they also said that deep insight into, the, into network traffic is essential. Um, this obviously brings things down to, you know, like the things like SD-WAN that we talk about and other kind of virtualization technologies, you know, they really need that kind of real time, you know, detailed networking sites at their, at their disposal to really get a holistic overview of what's going on in their networks and to kind of really manage that as well as possible. Um, one of the interesting things for me was security has kind of become never more, has never been more important. You know, DDoS traffic actually increased, as I mentioned before, between 40 and 50 percent during the pandemic. And of course, protecting that network infrastructure is is of the utmost importance. So kind of agile and cost effective DDoS detection and automated mitigation, according to the report, are becoming kind of paramount um, for networks and something that they need to bear in mind. So overall, some really interesting insights coming from Nokia, and I think something that um, is going to become more and more prevalent um, post this kind of lockdown era that we're in. Thanks, Natalie. Very interesting stuff indeed. Um, and staying on the market intelligence front, Google and the International Finance Corporation have also released a report this week, um, this time about the value of the internet economy across Africa. Um, Abigail, you crunched the numbers on this one. Tell us more. Yeah, so both um, released the report, like you said, which estimates that, you know, Africa's internet economy has the potential to reach 5.2% um, of the continent's GDP, by 2025 and will contribute nearly 180 billion to its economy. Now, the report pinpointed that what is driving the growth is a combination of increased access to better quality internet connectivity, um, a rapid expanding urban population, a growing tech talent pool, and Africa's commitment to creating the world's largest single market under the African um, continental free trade area. Now, um, the projected potential contribution um, could reach 712 billion by 2050, according to the new report. Now, currently, Africa is home to 700,000 developers and venture capital funding for startups have increased year on year for the past five years, with over 2 billion in equity um, funding raised in 2019, according to um, a company called Partech Venture Africa. Now, 19 of the 20 um, the top 20 fastest growing countries in the world are in Africa, according to the report. And urbanization is on the rise and an increasingly young and educated population is driving higher consumption of online services. Now, digital startups in Africa are driving innovation in sectors including fintech, health and entertainment, e-commerce and more, contributing to Africa's growing internet gross domestic product. An analyst, um, an, an analysis, sorry, funny word, um, within the report also conducted by um, Accenture found that in um, the year 2020, uh, which is this year, the continent's IGDP might contribute approximately $115 billion to Africa's $2.554 trillion GDP, which is around roughly 4.5% of the total GDP, which is a huge um, percentage. Um, this is up from 99.7% um, 
billion in 2019, with the potential to grow as the continent's economy develops. So yeah, big numbers um, for this report. And it's just interesting to see um, the potential that the um, Google and the IFC have predicted for Africa. Indeed it is, yeah. And let's hope that some of that potential um, is actually realised. Um, thanks, Abigail. And over to the US now. And President-elect Joe Biden has been moulding his FCC transition team and he has appointed Minion Clyburn, who is no stranger to the FCC. Um, Alan, you have this story. Tell us more. Yes, thank you. Yeah, the, these transition teams will work with the existing departments in Donald Trump's government. Uh, assume that is as uh, Trump concedes that Biden has won, which is maybe a, a, a few days yet to happen. Um, and the aim, of course, eventually is to ensure as smooth a changeover as possible. So, as you say, the woman to watch is Mignon Clyburn. Uh, she's already served briefly as acting chair of the FCC back in 2013. And she stayed on as a member of the FCC right through to April 2018 when the Trump administration ended net neutrality. And she was very opposed to that move. Um, she said at the time that the end of net neutrality was handing over the keys to the Internet over to billion dollar broadband providers. Um, so she's a fervent supporter of working to get affordable Internet access to all sectors of American society. In fact, I'm just looking at her her Twitter bio and she says she will speak up for the voiceless. So that's really where she's coming from. Um, will she actually be back on the FCC after uh, Biden takes over, maybe as chair? Um, we don't know. I mean, only Biden and his vice president-elect uh, Kamala Harris know that, so we'll see. But it looks like that she or uh, Jessica Rosenworcel, who's the other Democrat, who is a, still a Democrat on the FCC, um, is still an acting, uh, is still a member of the FCC, are probably in line to become chair, one or one or other of them. But uh, it's interesting that that uh, we've got Minion Clyburn uh, has already, you know, is now working. She knows the FCC inside out. She worked for it for a long time. Only left it uh, two and a half years ago. Um, She's also so she's a consultant as well. She also just got a job with a another telco with a telco as a board member. Um, so she might have to give that might have to choose between one and the other. She works for she's on the board of a cloud communications company. So we'll see. Um, we can't speculate yet. And, and there's still quite a there's still two months before inauguration day. Uh, and there's a lot going to happen before then. Um, so. I don't know, but sounds interesting. It looks like whatever happens, the whole emphasis of the FCC uh, after January the 20th will change to back to net neutrality uh, and back to trying to get uh, equal or wider access to Internet services and phone services across all sectors of American society. Interesting times. Mel, back to you. Very interesting. Yeah, I guess we'll um, we'll wait and see. If you were to help them draw up that agenda for the first, um, let's say, first 100 days, I'd really like to <laughs> kind of measure things by that. What would you like to see the FCC tackle? Oh, goodness. Uh, there's so many things um, and so many things I, d I think, to be realistic, he won't won't be on the top of the list. Um, one is uh, or the, the action against Chinese telcos or the refusal of, to grant licenses to Chinese telcos. Um, and the action that's been taken against Huawei. Uh, my, the feeling in my bones is that will ease over a few years, but it won't be something that happens at the first couple, first, as you say, 100 days, because that will just, they will have to assess the intelligence and have to assess what, 
what the Department of St uh, Justice and other Depart uh, Defense Department have said about China. Um, it's not going to be a quick reversal, I don't think, uh, if it happens at all. But um, yeah, net neutrality is very was very controversial. I mean, it was introduced as a, as a way of making sure that operators, internet service providers, could not discriminate between different sorts of traffic on the on their networks. Uh, its ending was very controversial. Uh, I suspect that would be welcomed quite widely across the U.S. Um, probably a, that would be a first step. But uh, the process is not. It's not a, the, the the new FCC will not take hold on the twentieth. It will be a process of nominating people. Uh, certainly, then they have to go before the Senate and the Senate. At the moment, there's a Republican majority on the Senate. Uh, if by-election uh, for Georgia coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, if the Democrats win that, then it will be a really balanced Senate, which means who knows what's going to happen. Sorry, I, I'm not a crystal ball gazer, so I don't know. It's going to be uh, very interesting times in Washington, D.C. It will be indeed. Um, but staying in D.C. Um, now, thank you for that story, Alan. Um, but more news from D.C. this week. Um, Abigail, you're going to cover this one. Um, Equinix has made a big announcement about its data center portfolio. Um, tell us what's been happening. Yeah, so Equinix has um, expanded in the Washington, D.C. area by opening its 16th IBX data center called DC21. With the addition of the facility, um, as well as the opening of the company's um, data center called DC15 earlier in the year, Equinix has invested over $200 million in the Washington, D.C. area um, in 2020. The company said that the new facility strengthens its position as a digital infrastructure and service provider in Washington. Um, Equinix's newest data centers are part of the company's um, data center campus in Ashburn, Virginia. The expansion of its Ashburn campus um, will provide Equinix additional, with additional capacity to respond to its customers' demand with the growing enterprise, government and cloud financial services in the industries. Um, now, the DC21 data center is a two-story facility designed to um, deliver both small and large capacity deployments. The company revealed this week that the $95 million first phase of the new facility will provide more than 41,000 square feet of co-location space, offering an initial capacity of 925 cabinets, which is you know, relatively large. Um, upon completion, the planned future phases, the, um, of the planned future phases, the data center is expected to provide a total capacity of 3,100 cabinets equivalent and a co-location space of more than 124,000 square feet. Um, now, the Washington DC Metro represents the largest co-location market in the US, which is the core reasoning behind data center giants um, like Equinix um, that have decided to further expand in that region. Um, according to a recent um, research by Synergy, um, the top 20 global markets generated over 60% of the worldwide data center um, co-location revenues, with the US having 10 of uh, these markets. So, you know, the US is actually really thriving in, in you know, the co-location space and Equinix is just there to be on top of it, to be honest. So it's a, it's not um, a surprising move for Equinix. Uh, um, you know, the data center company, it's always said that they will continue to expand and continue to build. So it's just, yeah, it's just nice to see how much they are, you know, rapidly expanding, even despite, you know, COVID-19. 
Definitely, yeah. Um, congratulations on that news. Um, well, thank you, Abigail. And now over to the UK, um, where Vodafone released its latest financial results this week. Um, and the company is now saying that it has increased confidence for its full year outlook. Um, Natalie, you covered the story. Tell us more about what's been happening at Vodafone. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, the Vodafone Group released its, the results for its first half of uh, 21, uh, 2021 financial year. Uh, something I always find it a bit weird to say when we're still still in 2020. But um, overall, the company said that the results were in line with its expectations for the period, with the group revenues having declined uh, 2.3% to 21.4 billion euros. Now, this was due to the effects of COVID-19 on roaming and visitor revenue, as well as uh, lower handset sales. Um, Nick Reed, the CEO of Vodafone, actually said COVID-19 and the reduction in roaming revenues through the significant reduction in international travel is currently obscuring our underlying commercial progress, with Q2 service revenue growing by 1.5%, excluding roaming. Now, the company's uh, free cash flow grew by 14.5% to 0.5 billion, thanks to what it says is a resilient uh, EBITDA performance and higher dividends from associates and investments, partially offset by higher cash interest and tax. Additionally, adjusted EBITDA for the period declined 1.9% to 7 billion euros, as the decline in revenue was partially offset by good cost control, with net Europe OPEX savings of about uh, 0.3 billion euros. As a result, the interim dividend per share was uh, 4.50 euro cents, um, and this is compared to a loss per share of about 7.24 uh, euro cents in the six months that ended uh, the 30th of September 2019. So dividends are still quite healthy. The company also shared its outlook for the rest of the financial year. And based on the current global macroeconomic outlook, adjusted EBITDA is expected to be between 14.4 euros to 14.6 billion euros uh, for the full year with a free cash flow of at least 5 billion euros. And this excludes any spectrum or restructuring commitments. So even though there has been a decline in revenues, I think the company was well prepared for it. And even so, uh, a healthy dividends for its shareholders. So it's still holding up quite well for Vodafone. Excellent news. Thank you, Natalie. Um, and staying in the UK now for our last story of the week, NEC is to set up a 5G open RAN centre of excellence, bringing some much needed competition to the vendor side of things. Um, Alan, you cover this story. Tell us what's been happening here. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Um, yeah, this is the latest development in the onward march of open RAN. That's abbreviation uh, for open radio access networks. Um, the, if you remember, the industry reacted with horror um, earlier this year when it realised why did it take them so long that it relied right around the world essentially on three big vendors of mobile equipment the stuff that goes on top of masts uh, so Ericsson, Huawei and Nokia and of course Huawei is blocked in much of the world uh, certainly the, the United States and uh, de facto in Europe um, so NEC has been hailed as the champion of Open RAN. It's always been in the industry, but it's decided it's a big company that has decided Open RAN was the way to go. Uh, earlier this year, it scored a world first with uh, Rakuten Mobile in Japan, which set up the world's first cloud-native 5G network using NEC's uh, using Open RAN. Uh, now NEC says this week that uh, in announced it on Thursday, that it's going to set up a centre of excellence in the UK. Uh, we don't know quite what it's going to be doing, and it hasn't said precisely where it's going to be. 
uh, but the company I've been digging around, it already has a small low, uh, mobile tech lab in Leatherhead, which is to the southwest of London, out in the Surrey countryside. And that's about 30 minutes from uh, Guildford, which is the home of the University of Surrey, where there's already a very active 5G lab in which many companies take part and some great 5G research has been going on there for years, um, including, ironically, I think Huawei had a, point, uh, a role at one stage. I'm not sure if it still does. Anyway, NEC told the UK government last month uh, that it wants to support 5G work in the UK and, and, and the government here in London has been really working very hard to get some friends in the 5G industry because it realises that UK almost has no presence in mobile technology at all at the moment. It's got a few smallish companies, but mostly they keep getting bought up uh, by Americans. Um, and so in its statement that's on Thursday morning, it said it will form the backbone of NEC's global project delivery capability. Uh, building on its long-term experience in communications network deployment, including wireless networks across the globe. No more details yet, but it sounds promising. There's also going to be a lab in India, uh, which will be, I guess, working with this, but it looks like NEC has spotted there is a global opportunity in 5G. Now, I think as we were saying possibly last week or the week before, it might be a bit late, but because it will take a few years to get these things up and running. Maybe by then we'll be in, what, 2022, 23. Um, by then, a lot of companies will already have taken their decisions about their 5G infrastructure. So maybe it's actually working towards 6G, uh, of which we will no doubt be doing even more over the next uh, few months, uh, because I think people. this is the time when people are starting to put together 6G. But that's another story. Um, but well done for NEC. They're, they, they're obviously going to be big in the in the 5G business in the future. Mel. Yeah, definitely. Um sets the um sets the scene for things to come, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alan. Um so next up Abigail is speaking to our guest of the week, um Bill Fennick, who is VP of Enterprise at Intellection. Over to you, Abigail. Thank you, Bill, for joining us on this episode of Digital Digest. Um, firstly, just give a bit about yourself so that the listeners know um, who you are, what you do, and um, then we can get into the discussion about smart cities. Okay, very good. Thank you, um, Abigail, for inviting me. Uh, my name is Bill Fennick. I'm Vice President of Enterprise for Interaction. Uh, Interaction is a digital realty company. We, we are a data center interconnectivity hub um in well now now we are a global company with the the recent acquisition uh from digital realty or dlr as perhaps some people know it um as um i've been with interaction for a bit more than seven years now prior to that uh i spent time quite a bit of time in the financial services industry uh focused heavily around the technology with companies such as tipco and then into Reuters and Thomson Reuters. So I spent approximately uh, 20 years in, in financial services uh, prior to joining Interaction. So I'm very happy to be uh, to be here and be, uh, to talk about these subjects with you, Abigail. Sounds good. And um, one key t- um, subject that I rarely cover, but it's you know quite important for our industry, is smart cities. So let's discuss how cities first need the right data center strategy in place in order to enable the level of connectivity needed to actually create a smart city um, and create you know and have IoT um, as a reality. 
So uh, the, the infrastructure is, of course, phenomenally important, and we, we always have a lot of discussion around around infrastructure, particularly around the edge, and what is an edge, if you will, an edge data center or an edge aggregation point. Um, I think, though, before getting into the infrastructure, we have to think around the data and the data that's being created, uh, particularly in these smart cities. Um, if we take the city of London, London has, for example, one, one of the most you know, intense data processing um, of any metro, really, most definitely here in Europe, but almost globally as well. Um, the infrastructure that's needed is indeed uh, the, 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 the underlying, if you will, fiber for, for broadband, for the uh, fixed networks, et cetera, on that. And then the corresponding uh, data centers where this data is actually aggregated. And then we think about where the edge might be and whether the edge is potentially an autonomous automobile or a mobile telephone or things like that. But the, the, the underlying infrastructure, the actual fiber, the cables that are laid under the city and, and where the data is aggregated in the data center uh, population as such um, are, are, the, are two key factors in smart cities. Oh, great. And what are some of the um, most uh, common misconceptions about um, data centers and smart cities that you've come across? A common misconception. Um, some of the common misconceptions would be that that a data center can be sitting remotely and not connected to the rest of the, the population or the rest of the data centers. So the, 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 the mere fact that you have a facility somewhere in the, in, in the deep recesses of the country or so, um, in this day and age, uh, does not make a lot of sense. What you want is you want to have this connectivity or almost this hyper-connectivity, or as we, call, as we call our data centers, these interconnectivity hubs, which allow for the connection, be it an ISP, be it broadband, be it fixed, fixed, uh, fixed telcos or fixed, fixed fiber with telcos. It's all around the connectivity and it starts from there. And then you build up from the connectivity to indeed you know, multiple of these large uh, technology companies that we think about, uh, be it the, the large cloud providers and the large social media or the gaming. So what, what happens is that we, we, we begin to introduce a lot of what we call latency. And the latency is the time travel, if you will, from one message from one point to another. Um, from a financial services perspective, latency was, was well known a good 20 years ago where they started to trade, if you will, in, in a microsecond capability or a millisecond, and then it went down to microsecond. Uh, this type of methodology, if you will, has been applied writ large uh, to cities in terms of ensuring that you have deterministic latency uh, to move the data around. But the, the, the most common misconception is that a data center sitting uh, unconnected very far out uh, is can, can still be a, a viable one. Uh, and that's, that's proving to be more and more false in this, this, this age of digital transformation. I see, I see. And in terms of um, interaction itself, what are some of the stuff that the company is doing um, pertaining to smart cities and IoT? Well, we're, we're very interested and, and keen to understand you know, where, where data is being created and where data is being stored. Uh, 
And, and if, if, if we start to understand that, where, where what we call workloads, which are applications uh, running, running in data centers, what the workloads are doing and where they need to transfer data back and forth. So Interaction excuse me, made its name as being an actual carrier hotel. We really concentrate on the connectivity part of it to ensure that we had multiple suppliers in there in a carrier neutral data center. Um, this, this, the second wave, if you will, that, that came on were the large cloud providers or the platforms that we ensured that we were able to, to capture within our footprint because we understood that with digital transformation, cloud was going to be um, the juggernaut in this whole thing where, where companies would look to digitalize more and more of their workstations and, and bring them to the cloud. We're now focusing much more on the enterprises and we're seeing how they, how they build through the digital transformation uh, much more into a co-located um, hybrid environment is what we call it. So interaction plays a very key role in all of this in, in terms of having all of the community there. And we call it a community of interest. So as mentioned, we started with the community of interest of telco providers or of, of connectivity providers as we call, it, which could be ISPs, CDNs, and, and the actual telco providers. Um, then we moved into the platforms and really capturing uh, the platform. And, and, and now we're looking quite strongly at enterprises. And, and capturing them in their initial stages of the digital transformation. So it's this community of interest that we've built up over the years that actually is, is one of the major attraction points for interaction. And um, what was the rationale behind looking into um, enterprises now? Was that just like the general progression or was, you know, was it a strategic plan? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's quite honestly, it's both. Um, the, the rationale, the biggest rationale is that enterprises comprise the biggest market out there. Um, when, you, when you think about connectivity providers and the whole connectivity sector, if you will, it's a relatively finite amount, um, maybe you know, 1,000 or 2,000 uh, connectivity in, our, in the connectivity sector. When you think about the large cloud platforms, you have an even smaller you know, amount. Enterpri enterprises, you have this fantastic amount of enterprises that sit out there. Uh, we talk a lot about the global 2000, the 2000 largest enterprises. Um, and then you can start to bring it down from global 2000. You can start to deconstruct a bit further and say, well, you've got all these other enterprises doing what's called a billion euros a, a year in revenue and further and further down. So all of a sudden the pie just gets that much bigger and, and enterprises does indeed represent the largest pie out there in terms of go-to-markets and, and, and revenue potential. So that's, that, that's the, if you will, the progression. Also noting that the enterprises are, are very much the target of the, the, the cloud providers as well. So that everybody's looking to, to assist and support enterprises in terms of their whole digital transformation and, and adopting technologies that um, you know, many of the smart cities have, be it indeed IoT, mobile telephony, um, and, and now much more around artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and, and further into perhaps blockchain and et cetera. So that, that's the rationale behind enterprises is it really provides the biggest, biggest slice of pie in the market. Mm. And um, 
you know, you spoke about digital transformation just now, and um, obviously we're in a global pandemic. Um, have you noticed any trends that um, cause, caused by the recent um, COVID-19 that you can maybe comment on in regards to how digital transformation is taking shape? Yeah, I think, you know, the we, 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 we're all working from home these days, uh, clearly. So it, it's, it's, it's a trend that, that we're all phenomenally familiar with because we've been doing it the last eight to nine months or so, um, indeed. But what's, what's, what's more noticeable is the fact that the, a lot of the systems were fairly seamless from taking your, your, your systems from the office directly to your home and being to log in and, and have you know, these, these software as a service applications sitting there all working single sign-on. So these trends have actually been tested to the hilt. Trends, these, these, this, the IT infrastructure has been tested to the hilt. And, you know, we, we see that, particularly with a lot of our, our, our telco providers, that they're enhancing a lot of their capabilities because everybody is sitting on their broadband. So I think most of the, most of the things that, 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 that we, we use day in and day out nowadays is really based on, on a lot of the technology transformations that have happened over the past, or that have happened over the past um, three to five years. Uh, the adoption of the cloud, and particularly in this respect, the, the software as a service, uh, be it Office 365 or, or the Salesforces or you know, this plethora of, um, plethora of uh, you know, applications that are now sitting in a cloud environment. Uh, what, what we're seeing is that they're actually being tested quite heavily. And, and most of them are coming out uh, quite well. Uh, most people are able to work and be highly productive sitting on their home computer or their home in their home uh, home offices on office computers. So these, these are the things that we're going to see. Uh, the trends for the smart city in the future, I think, will will will, will be even greater in terms of uh, uh, the technology and the enhancements that will be coming down the line. Agreed. And um, lastly, just before we round up, what are some of um, the key features of a smart city? So um, that it's clear because, you know, I've seen a lot and I've read a lot, but um, it'd be nice to just hear some of the main aspects that make a smart city a smart city. Well, I think, you know, and you, you, you of course, reference the, 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 the pandemic, which, which is on everybody's minds these days. Um, smart cities, uh, in my, my opinion, will continue to aggregate more and more data. And then, and, and we, we call that actually within, within our, our, you know, uh, around data gravity, the, the aggregation of data and the creation of data in these very large metropolitan areas. And what's what's going to happen is is, is that the the smart cities will continue, will begin to convert this data to, if you will, smart data, so data or information that they can actually act upon. So there's the aggregation of that data, perhaps at the edge point, that will then be consumed in in a, a co-location data center, and then the analysis that will take place, be it AI, machine learning, so crunching that data to actually be able to have uh, an actionable item at the end of that. Be it, you know, I, I, I walked, for example, I had to get my knee uh, uh, x-rayed a couple of weeks ago. And I, as I was walking into the hospital, my temperature was taken even before I was even at the entrance. And I think things like this, where perhaps going into the London Underground, for example, the New York subway, 
temperatures will be taken, and then they'll be able to aggregate that data, crunch it out to understand where potential clusters of, of if you will, asymptomatic or infectious people might be. So really making it, taking the data and making it much more actionable that people can, 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 can synthesize data, make it actionable so that they can make a decision on it and hopefully take a proactive decision. We see that a lot in the industrial setup these days uh, where, where proactive maintenance sensors are put on machines or potentially on cars and proactive maintenance can be done on that. Well, I see that being applied to cities as well, where perhaps proactively we can, we can start to uh, minimize traffic, traffic on the streets uh, or, or, or minimize potentially, you know, potentially other, other things that happen in a large metropolitan area. Um, so that's, in my opinion, the biggest trend is, is the, the aggregation of this data, synthesizing it to allow for an actionable uh, decision to be made on it. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for speaking to me um, today and for joining us on the Digital Digest podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks both. That was very insightful. Um, and that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, as always, we'll be bringing you the latest industry news and analysis all week over at capacitymedia.com. Um, and from there, you can sign up to your daily news alerts for both capacity and data economy and read the latest issues of the magazine. Um, you can also keep up to date with our webinars. And there are plenty of those coming up before the end of the year. Um, we actually have further to Natalie's story today. Um, we have Nokia joining us next Wednesday to talk about networks for 2021. Um, so full details over at capacitymedia.com and we will return with another episode of the Digital Digest next week. Until then, it's goodbye from me and the team and have a great weekend.